The first reading is from Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to 8. It can be found on page 1139 on the Church Bibles. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 5. Um, it can be found on page 1032. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding round him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on the shore left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these fantastic words from your word. May the words of my mouth today 
and the thoughts of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. Amen. They are great passages, aren't they? Awesome. I was wondering who here is left-handed? Anybody? Oh, three, at least three, four. Excellent, that's good. So, right-handed? Anybody ambidextrous? Yes, two. That's good, isn't it? That's interesting. Um, My dad was ambidextrous, and he often did things just as well with either hand. But I think that's because in his childhood days, um, although he was naturally left-handed, he wasn't allowed to use his left hand at school. And so he learned to be very skillful with both hands. I don't know if that's your story or not, but that was his story. I think we behave differently now in schools, but I've been thinking a lot about hands this week because on Monday, my day off, I had a little mishap with the bread knife. I'll spare you the gory details, but suffice it to say that although it wasn't in any way a serious injury, I've had rather a sore digit all week. I heartily agreed with the nurse when she said, at least it's only your left hand. For a right-handed person such as myself, a little injury to the left hand was not such a big deal. Or so I thought on Monday lunchtime. I don't know if you've ever noticed how much you use your less preferred hand. Some jobs are really tricky without all ten digits. Getting dressed, washing your hair, taking a bath or a shower, tying shoelaces, making a sandwich, typing. Bizarrely, even driving is more onerous without all ten fingers. Some jobs were at first simply impossible, chopping onions for cooking, that kind of thing. But most things just required a little bit of adjustment from my 10-digit efficient system. My tasks were achieved a little slower than they might have been usually, and also rather more clumsily than they might have been. But I got there in the end. But you know, it was tiring having to find new ways of doing simple things for which my left pointing finger was perfectly suited. All my other fingers had to work harder to protect the injured one and to do the jobs that I couldn't use this finger for because it was out of action. My respect really goes out to you those of you that live with life-limiting conditions that are really serious. It really does. In my own small way, I can tell you, I've ended this week with a new respect for fingers. Their sensitivity and versatility is utterly amazing. And I believe St. Paul would have said, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is my point exactly. Let's turn again, look up, if you will, Romans 12, and see exactly what he said. Paul is a practical sort of chap. We know this because he made his living uh, making tents. But it's also clear from his writings that for him, faith is not all about what goes on in your head. It's just not. He wants 
what you believe to affect how you live. If you will, for your creed to affect your conduct. For the first 11 chapters of Romans, he's been unfolding the mercies of God and the various ways which we can perceive them. He is in no doubt at all that our salvation depends on God's mercy and that alone, not on our individual merits or anything else, simply on God's mercy. And so he begins chapter 12 with that wonderful word, therefore. Whenever you see that in scripture, you know that the author is building an argument based on something that he's already told you. We have been told about God's amazing mercy, which leads to our salvation. And so, as a response to that, we are urged to live in a way that expresses the gratitude of our hearts. Such a way of living is seen by God as worship. Sometimes we're prone to compartmentalize the idea of worship. We think worship is the singing part in between the words in a service. It's a moment to get up and stretch your legs, have a hearty old sing song, express your feelings to God in music. Now it is true that it is such an important part of our service and we are really grateful to the musicians who give so much of their time and effort to enrich our time together in this way. We really are. I certainly find it so much easier to draw close to God and to engage with his word with music. But for those of you that are not too keen on that part, and there are always quite a few people who don't like the singing at all, there's good news. Paul tells us here that true worship is not just singing. In fact, worship isn't pleasing to God at all if it's only inward and somewhat abstract. It needs to express itself in the way we behave, in concrete acts. Holiness for the Christian shows itself in the way we behave, often in humble deeds of service that may seem to go unnoticed by others. And that is an expression of worship. Thankful adoration to God for all that he has done for you, expressed not in singing or words of any sort. Often in things like washing up, gardening, typing, driving a car. We worship God. We honor him by doing whatever we do in his name. Real worship is offering our everyday life to him. And so you might say in one sense that you go as much to worship when you head off to your workplace in the week as you do when you come here on a Sunday. Worship does not just live in this building. And that's quite a challenging thought, I think. It means that at any moment in the day, you might ask yourself, is this task and the way in which I'm doing it God-honoring? According to Paul, we should always be able to answer 
Yes. Society often advises us otherwise. The message seems to be that we should do what makes us feel good, or perhaps what makes us richer, or makes us more important and powerful. God's standards are different, and sometimes we need to review our behavior in light of what the Bible says about the measure of greatness in a person and the purpose and meaning of our lives. Paul here urges us to change the way we think, to become more in line with the way God sees things. He uses a Greek word from which we get our word metamorphosis. Interestingly, in zoological terms, apparently metamorphosis is what happens when an immature insect changes into a mature adult. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're a congregation of insects, but it would be nice to think that we are growing in spiritual maturity, learning to think all the time with godly priorities. So, back to Paul, using one of his very favorite images. He reminds us that just as the body has lots of different parts that work together, so the body of Christ, the church, is made up of lots of different individuals with different skills and gifts, and we should work together for the good of the whole. The first century philosopher, Epictetus, quite a tricky name, commented on this. He said, I'm going to read it, if I were a nightingale, I would do what is proper to a nightingale. If I were a swan, I would do what is proper to a swan. In other words, know yourself. It helps to have an honest assessment of your own capabilities and to accept yourself as you actually are. Use the gifts that God has given you. Because the efficiency of the universe depends on every creature playing its own part. Now, I have no idea if nightingales can swim or not, but they do sing beautifully. Swans, on the other hand, glide beautifully on the water. But I've never heard one make a nice song. I've only ever heard them hiss at passing dogs. For me, the world would be a poorer place without the song of the nightingale even if I could watch, watch the elegant swans glide by on the lake. Epictetus concludes, In fact, I am a rational being, and so I must praise God. We can do that by using the gifts that we have. All gifts come from God. No one of them is any better than the other. They are just different but all necessary for the proper functioning of the church. Some jobs require special skills and training, others willingness and flair, but they're all necessary for us to thrive together. Now I have to say, I love my job, but some of you might absolutely hate it. On the other hand, it might come as second nature for you to do something that I would find extremely difficult. So whilst I could take on the flower arranging, for example, in church, 
Believe me, you would immediately notice the difference. Our flower ladies have a sensitivity and a creativity with flowers that I simply do not have, even on a good day with ten fingers. I could shove a few pretty flowers in a vase, but I could not ever create the things of beauty that our flower team bless us with. To return to thinking of Paul's image of the body for a moment, I've managed perfectly well this week with one finger out of action. But I haven't really functioned as well as I might have done had all my fingers been well. If you are not doing the task for which you're gifted by God in the service of the church, I wonder how it's being done. Perhaps somebody who finds it really difficult is struggling along, doing their best, waiting for your support. Or perhaps nobody's doing it at all. And we're all desperate for somebody to volunteer, to do the thing that brings you great fulfillment to offer. Paul exhorts us to know ourselves and to practice doing what God has gifted us to do. He offers an interesting selection of examples. Prophecy. Practical service. That covers all manner of things, doesn't it? Teaching. Encouragement. Sharing. Leadership. Showing mercy. Another interesting one. What is clear is that members of the family of Christ are expected to be involved in the life of the family, not just playing when we feel like it, like a hobby, but rather serving each other in this way is a divine calling. It's a worshipful response to God's loving mercy to us. Our New Testament reading from Luke, you might want to flick to Luke, shows us an example of what that might look like in practice. Simon Peter was a fisherman by trade. He had been doing that, fishing and mending his nets, when he met Jesus. His fishing boat would probably have been his most precious possession because it was his livelihood after all. It represents for us his life. And yet, when Jesus asked to use it, he put all his worldly wealth at his disposal. I dare say that he would have been tired, possibly a little bit grumpy. He'd been out on the lake all night fishing, although he hadn't caught very much. So serving Jesus might not have seemed like an overly convenient opportunity to him that particular morning, but there was a need and he was able to offer his practical skills of seamanship in the service of Jesus. Once Jesus had finished teaching from the boat, he asked Simon Peter to catch some fish. Now, I think Simon Peter shows considerable grace here because when you think about it, he's a professional fisherman. He knows his job, and he's had a hard and frankly rather depressing night not catching very much. When this carpenter, this part-time preacher man, asks him to go fishing in the middle of the day when everyone knows you catch fish at night. 
But rather than giving him a lecture on how well he knows his own job, thank you very much, rather than explaining how terribly tired he is, or many of the other things a lesser man might well have said, he responds honestly to Jesus. And he does it anyway, because that is what Jesus has asked him to do. There are some surprising consequences to this simple act of obedient service. First and foremost, they catch fish. Lots and lots of fish. Simon Peter is a fisherman, and so this represents for him actual wealth, material blessing. He uses his everyday skills and gifts in the service of Jesus, and he is blessed by unlooked-for riches that are so great that they spill over and bless others. Secondly, in spending this time with Jesus rather than sulking on the shore with his nets, his life is transformed, for he suddenly gains a new understanding of who Jesus is. He's blessed materially, but also spiritually, as he realizes in a completely new way the nature of the one he's keeping company with. Finally, he's been blessed materially and spiritually, but also others around him are blessed too. His business partners, partners James and John, are impacted by the change in Simon Peter. They benefit from their share in this enormous catch of fish, no doubt. But we notice that it's not only Simon Peter who leaves his nets to follow Jesus, but also James and John. One act of obedient service transforms the lives of many. Last week, Simon began this challenging sermon series with a question. Are you in the boat? He challenged us as a church family to build on firm foundations with Jesus as our reference point, the only source of unconditional love. He exhorted us to invest our time, our effort, our money wisely so that we might together make a difference. I think our readings this morning remind us how important each individual family member is, how important you are. Each one of us brings something special to the family of God. And as a family, we are poorer without each single one. Paul calls us to worship God with our whole lives, not to just sit on a pew for an hour on a Sunday morning. He calls us to know ourselves and to bring our gifts and talents to the foot of the cross in grateful offering of thanks to God for his loving sacrifice for us. In effect, he calls us to worship God with all that we are. In doing so, we honour God 
for all that he has done for us. We find fulfillment that we didn't expect, and we bring blessing to others in Jesus' name. In short, we begin to live life in all its fullness as God intended from the start. As we gather around the communion table now, we recall the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection to glory. We reflect on all that he gave for us. Our challenge this morning is to consider how we respond to this act of unconditional love. Do you know, the hour that we spend together this morning on a Sunday represents much less than 1% of our week. Does that alone adequately express your gratitude to your Lord? Paul urges us to offer our whole lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. I wonder what that looks like for you. Amen.